0: All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Bioverge Inc. or its affiliates. The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither Bioverge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. Nothing contained in and accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioVerge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to the BioVerge Podcast with Neil Lit. Neil, today we're going to talk about COVID vaccines with our guest, Craig Laferriere. I, I know you've been looking forward to this discussion. Who is Craig?
1: Yeah, so I am incredibly excited to have Craig on the show today. I've been wanting to do a deep dive on the the, the vaccine landscape for a while now. So Craig is an accomplished medical advisor. He has expertise in vaccine design and manufacturing. He's got over 25 years of experience in regulatory clinical research, uh, access, marketing. Uh, He uh, currently is head of vaccine development at Novator. Uh, He was a medical advisor um, to the vaccine division at Pfizer in Canada. Uh, He's part of the vaccine leadership. He was part of the vaccine leadership team there. So he's got a ton of experience. He was previously at uh, GlaxoSmithKline uh, as well. So brings a host of experience uh, and knowledge from his career in in vaccine development. Um, And so really excited to do a deep dive with him today.
0: There's been remarkable speed in vaccine development in response to the pandemic and a a wide range of technologies that have been deployed. What do you think the response has said about the industry? Um, I think it said a lot about the industry in terms of the industry's
1: ability to collaborate uh, and work together at a, you know, heretofore unprecedented scale. And so, you know, the, 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 the development um, in terms of bringing new vaccine to market was, I think, accurately termed, you know, Operation Warp Speed. And I think the industry really did deliver on that moniker, uh, I think the vaccines have been developed at you know warp speed. Um, things that would ordinarily take years of development uh, were were really proven and and borne out in you know less than a, a year's period of time to combat this global pandemic. And so I'm really excited to talk to Craig and and understand some of the history, what has what has laid the groundwork to allow the industry to move at this fast pace. Uh, what are some of the technologies that are being deployed out there uh, to develop vaccines there there's at least four different types of technologies being employed to develop vaccines. Uh, you know what are those? how are they different? How do they work? Uh, how should people think about the different types of vaccines? Are there differences that people should should think about? Um, and so I think Craig will bring a really uh, really unique perspective. Well, if you're all set I'm all set, let's do it, Danny. Craig, thank you for joining us on the show today. I'm incredibly excited to to welcome you.
2: Uh, Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Neil.
1: So, Craig, today we're going to talk about the COVID vaccines, the different technologies being deployed, the recent paper you co-authored in the open access journal, Viruses, that looks at how the different vaccines compare. Uh, Two things that I think surprised most people about the COVID-19 response was number one, how rapidly the industry was able to develop and win approval for uh, several different vaccines. And to me, what was even more surprising was the range of technologies that have been deployed. Uh, the pace at which industry has been able to move has been impressive, I think by most measures and surpassed even the expectations held by uh, most industry folks, um, as well as the general public. How successful have the vaccine development efforts been? And why do you think we've been able to see vaccines come online as fast as they have?
2: That's a really good question. and. The, I think people don't realize that a lot of re- research was being done already on these coronavirus uh, viruses, <clears throat> because, of course, there was the SARS uh, epidemic, which was, I forget what year it was, 2008 and 2007, maybe. Um, and then also there was MERS, more around uh, 2015. You might have to correct me on the, the, the years for those. Outbreaks, but it was known that these uh, coronaviruses uh, had the ability to infect humans, and so there was already a lot of baseline research being done on what are the best antigens to pick for the vaccine, how to manufacture those antigens, and uh, and then when when uh, SARS-CoV-2 came along, I think the the all the groundwork had been done, and it was just a matter of cloning the actual. Uh, gene for this particular virus, which was, uh, as you may know, it's the, the the spike protein, which is you know three out of the four vaccine platform technologies use that that spike protein as their main antigen. and uh, And then it was a question of uh, getting the manufacturing up and running and uh, and running the the clinical trials. So so it wasn't as if we were starting from zero. There was a good baseline already.
1: And, and so, Craig, do, do you think all the work that, that had been done previously on the, the coronaviruses uh, that were related to the SARS outbreak, the MERS outbreak, you know, identified that the spike protein was the right antigen and the right target to go after? Because I, I think early on that was a little bit of a gamble, right? A lot of vaccine developers were all going after the spike protein, but it wasn't yet proven at that time that that was actually the right target to go after.
2: Yeah, there, I mean, the, all, a lot of the clinical work, of course, had they hadn't gone into phase three. There had been some, you know, phase one studies just to look at immunogenicity. <clears throat> and, um, and one of the things that was done, and, and this is may, may be getting a little bit technical, but um, there, there was, it was known that um, the the protein sort of has a, a trigger uh, mechanism in it, and that it's sort of the pre-fusion and post-fusion, and, it, and the protein changes shape uh, when it, uh, it tries to fuse with the surface of a of a cell, and there had been some concern in the past that uh, during the manufacturing process of this of this protein, it could um you know, the the trigger could could spring and uh, the shape of the protein would be in the post fusion shape, and in which case you wouldn't get a, a very useful immune response. And so they had already done some research on making some amino acid modifications in the spike protein that locked it into the pre-fusion uh, shape, the pre-fusion con- conformation. And so, so that, uh, that particular, particular piece of technology was, uh, had been re- studied very well. And it was, uh, you know, the, the animal models were also there to, to show that uh, this antigen in this particular shape did provide protection against uh, coronavirus infection.
1: Craig, in, in June of 2020, so about a year ago, you published an article about what the ideal vaccine would look like. So you looked at what the ideal target product profile, uh, or industry jargon, TPP, would look like. What did you come up with at that time?
2: Well, that's, you know, <clears throat> I'll have to <laughs> dig out the paper and take a look at it, but you know, the um, the most uh, this is a the target product profile is a, is a technique that's used by um, uh, um, all pharmaceutical companies and 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 probably also even a, a lot of other uh, industries where they try to sort of uh, have input into the um, uh, what the product is going to look like to satisfy the market. And so in it, 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 early on in the whole development process, the idea is that the scientists are aware, OK, this is this is what we've got to uh, develop. And the clinical researchers know this is the kind of study we have to perform in order to get the evidence that we can talk about our product and say, yes, this product uh, protects uh, you know people against this disease. The the main thing that was very interesting in these um, target product profile was the efficacy. Requirement, and the the, um, the usually the when you're getting a license for for a vaccine, you, you have to show that the, of course you have like a a percentage efficacy that's calculated, and then there's a statistical analysis that you you get a confidence interval. So let's say the vaccine is seventy percent. Your clinical study shows the vaccine efficacy is seventy percent, but due to statistics, there will be a range, and it could be anywhere between. Um, you know, 30 and 90. And one of the things that came out in the TPP is that the, uh, especially the FDA said that they wanted the lower limit of efficacy to be 30%. And usually that lower limit is actually 0%. As long as you can show that it's somewhere above zero, that the vaccine is providing protection, then that's uh, sufficient for for getting a license. But in this instance, they wanted the vaccine to have uh, 50% uh, efficacy and had a lower bound of, of 30% efficacy. So that set some criteria around the types of clinical trials that, that could be done uh, in order to prove that. And uh, you know, it made the size and of course the each manufacturer used uh, power calculation to show how statistically how large the trial needed to be to be able to to prove that and and uh, and one of the things that that came out at that time also which was very interesting you rarely see if if ever is that almost all the manufacturers published their clinical trial protocols online so they showed you uh, you know how uh, they were going to do this trial to show that the vaccine had efficacy and that's unheard of. Usually these clinical trial protocols are kept very secret and uh, and the statistical methods that they use are, are, you know, not put on display until after the, you know, the trial is completed and the the study is published. So it was really unprecedented to see that that all of them took this particular uh, target product profile of the vaccine efficacy of 50% with a lower bound of 30% uh, into their clinical trial studies
1: so craig there's a, there are a few things i 'd like to dive into there. Number one, any insights into why the FDA would have this increased requirement in terms of the lower bound of the confidence, confidence interval being thirty percent as opposed to what's typically 0%? what 's typically zero percent Why would the FDA want to see that in, in this in this instance
2: yeah it, you know what i, I don 't have any insight on that i I uh, spoke to uh, my brother in law who's a biostatistician and, and in fact he was asking me. You know, wh- why are they doing that? And I um, and don't have an, a straightforward answer for you on that one. Sorry.
1: Okay. Yeah, no, no problem. And, and of course, as, as we know, the efficacy uh, that we saw in, you know, the phase three clinical trials was well north of what the FDA had 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 set, right? We were in yeah. the sort of 95% uh, range in terms of efficacy. We'll, we'll dive into that. I guess the, the other um, point I wanted to, to ask about was, you, you had mentioned that publishing the clinical protocols was was really unprecedented. I mean, that that's usually pretty, you know, I guess confidential within you know the the, the pharmaceutical companies. Do you think that was a result of, of public pressure or just how public this you know global pandemic has been? Well, why do you think the companies decided to pursue that that unprecedented path?
2: I think that already by last summer, um, when you know the there was this very rapid preclinical development, the animal models, uh, the manufacturing, and then the, already the move into first in humans. And I think there was already the, the anti-vaxxer uh, groups were talking about this development is happening too fast. So I think it was a response to to that. I think it was a, a recognition that uh, this this whole process, if it's going to go fast, it needs to be completely transparent. and uh, And I think that part of it was this um, opening up and, and uh, putting the cards on on the, the table, so to speak, so that everyone could see exactly uh, how things were proceeding.
1: For the new study, you looked at a dozen vaccines that were in phase three, uh, that were phase three ready or later in development as of uh, November of this year. There were four basic technologies used by these vaccines, and I, I really want to dive into each of these. Um, so I thought we could walk through each one and how. And have you explain how they work. So the, the first are the messenger RNA vaccines, which include Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech's approved vaccines. Uh, those are the first approved vaccines. Could, could we spend a little time, and could you explain how those mRNA vaccines work?
2: Yeah, this is a, a really exciting technology to me. Um, I had sort of touched on it back in the 90s and, um, and, and had completely forgotten about it. And, and, and so when uh, it came out in, in the spring that this was a technology that was in the running, I was, was really excited and I read up all the patents and I you know, read as much literature about it as I could uh, just to get, catch up on 20 years of, of research that had been going on since then. And the idea is, is the, interestingly enough, the very first person to use this idea uh, was a guy named Diorgio Dimitriadis back in 1978. And uh, he found that um, if you take a little a piece of uh, messenger RNA and, uh, and you in, envelop it in uh, um, a little f- fat droplet, droplet that um, it'll be taken up by cells, and that those cells will express that whatever that messenger RNA is coding for, and uh, produce that protein, and then there'll be an immune response against that protein. And oddly enough, that that whole idea remained dormant for many years until it was uh, picked up again later. The in in the sort of the early 90s, an idea came along to. Either just directly inject DNA or directly inject messenger RNA into um, animals. It started off with animals and mice, and and what was found is that uh, that would elicit a, an immune response against the protein that the messenger RNA or that the DNA coded for. And so there was a lot of excitement about this technology, but when it was tried in 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 primates and in and in humans, it didn't work. And what was going on was that the uh, there are enzymes in our blood that simply digest the DNA and RNA before it has a chance to be taken in by a cell and have its, uh, its code translated into a, a protein. So so the, the trick was then, well, how do you prevent the messenger RNA from being digested? And this is where this little lipid uh, droplet came uh, came back. And a lot of the technology is is involved around getting this little fat droplet to coalesce around the messenger RNA. And then that protects it. So when you inject it into an arm, it doesn't get digested by the enzymes that are in your blood. And then that little droplet is the right size. It's small enough that it gets taken up by your cells. So they're, they're very tiny. They're about uh, 80 uh, nanometers in diameter. So that's why they're called um, lipid, um, nanoparticles. And, um, and then the other trick was that once it's taken up by the cell, now the lipid has to release that messenger RNA into the uh, cytoplasm of the cell. And that's done with the technology they call these, um, positively charged lipids or, or cat ions. And, um, and so there's a whole series of patents around those particular positively charged lipids that, um, uh, their action uh, occurs when there's a change of pH. When when a, a cell phagocytizes, when it eats up a little uh, droplet, it goes into something called an endosome. And then um, uh, that endosome, uh, there are uh, en- enzymes that are put in there to digest whatever that is in that particle. Well, that change, and there's also a change in the pH uh, inside that endosome. And when that pH changes, that triggers the release of the messenger RNA and then the messenger RNA is able to escape uh, into the cytosol and then, and then it's just recognized as a, uh, a regular piece of RNA. So the other trick that they did was to make sure that there was no way that the cell would think that this piece of messenger RNA is foreign. It would think that this is just a regular old piece of messenger RNA and it would the machinery inside the cell would take it and translate it into the the code, into whatever protein that it coded for. And of course, in this case, it it coded for the spike protein. Now that's recognized as something foreign that triggers the whole immune response. And, um, and, and away you go.
1: So Craig, I think similar to your earlier comment about, you know, how the industry was able to advance these vaccines at such a rapid pace, because there had been decades of, of work done on, um, you know, coronaviruses. Um, I think similar. There's, as you mentioned, there's been decades of work being done for M- mRNA vaccines, and so this was sort of, I guess, the 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 you know coming out party for you know these types of vaccines. This technology, uh, to a large degree, obviously these were the first mRNA M- mRNA vaccines ever approved. Um, I think what was really incredible to me was the, the pace of, of development, and I might not have my timeline exactly right, but you know, Moderna, for example, right, I think Chinese researchers first published the, the genetic code of SARS-CoV-2 online, and then within, I think it was like 48 hours of that being published online, I think Moderna was able to print the, their mRNA vaccine from the digital copy of the genetic code without ever having a physical copy of the virus. And it's that actual mRNA vaccine, which is, has been the approved vaccine that is now being delivered to millions of people. And it was just incredible in terms of the turnaround time and them going from a you know sort of the, the digital world to the physical world. And that's now the vaccine that is being distributed. And of course, it was the clinical trials that, that took much longer to complete. Um, but that, that was pretty incredible to me. I don't, I don't know if you had any insights in, into that in particular.
2: Well, it's one of the great things about this messenger RNA technology is that it's a lot of it is is just chemistry. Um, You're not you don't need to use living cells to manufacture it. Most other in fact, all the other vaccines require living cells to produce um, either the virus for the uh, viral vector types of vaccines uh, or the uh, subunit protein types uh, or even the whole virus uh, vaccines, those require living cells. And so you have to grow those in a, in a bio, uh, fermenter and, uh, they have growing conditions and have to be kept at a certain temperature, a certain amount of oxygen and so on. Whereas the, the, what, what's going on with the messenger RNA is it's, it's almost purely chemical and, uh, you just mix the reagents like you do in a test tube and away the reaction goes. And so these, these things are, um, much uh, easier to, to control, much uh, easier to purify. Uh, right, right now they're more expensive because the reagents are all, uh, there's a whole industry that needs to be sort of built up behind all these different reagents that needed to be added. But uh, I think that'll, that'll change. I think <clears throat> the price of these types of vaccines will come down when, um, when more of the industry gets behind this, this manufacturing platform.
1: And I think this is a nice segue into the second uh, bucket of vaccines that are being developed. These are viral vector-based vaccines, which, uh, among others, include AstraZeneca and and Johnson & Johnson's vaccines. Could you describe a little bit about what these are and and how they work?
2: Sure. So the the viral vector vaccines are all based on um, an an adenovirus vaccine that is non-replicating. And that's the real secret behind this vaccine that makes it safer than other types of live virus vaccines, which can replicate. So for example, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine that children get, is a, is a, it's an attenuated live virus. And those kinds of vaccines should not be given to people with um, damaged immune systems because they might not be able to control the virus, even though it's weakened, it, it could get out of, out of control. But with these viral vector types, the adenovirus is modified in such a way that it is unable of replicating. And and I'll give you a little bit of an explanation of how that's done. So it's all based on a a cell line known as the HEC-293 cell line. And this cell line was um, invented by a a physician uh, named um, uh, Frank Graham back in the 1970s and up to at that point there was a lot of interest in cell lines that is types of cells that can grow outside a living body the first cell line that uh, had been discovered was the uh, um, it was it was created it's, it's it's a very interesting story there's a there's a book about it called the immortal life of henrietta Lacks. and what was found was that um, cell. Her cells. She had a, a, a cervical cancer, and that cells from that cervical cancer could be put in a petri dish, and they would just continue growing. Now, if you take any other cells from your body and put them in a petri dish, they'll grow for a week, maybe two weeks, but eventually they'll die. But these particular cells just kept on multiplying and kept on growing. So there was a lot of uh, interest in in creating these kinds of cell lines, and it, it's a very interesting. Uh, it, it's somewhat controversial for this um, uh, HEC cell line because HEC stands for human uh, embryonic kidney. And so the, there's you might have heard some chatter on the internet about people shouldn't receive this vaccine because it's it's based on a human cell line. I think the, the Vatican uh, made a, a response to that and that it was perfectly morally acceptable to use this vaccine. So I think that should help allay some of the moral concerns that people have. And, and the laws have uh, improved since the 1970s on who controls uh, your, your cells and what can they, they can be used for. But they didn't understand how a cell could be made immortal. And so back in the 70s, Frank Graham was doing what a lot of other physicians were doing, and that was mixing cells from an animal source, So in this case it was a human kidney, mixing them with viral DNA. And the viral DNA that he was using was an adenovirus. And then he would put these cells in a Petri dish and most of the cells would die by 10 or 15 days or so, but some of the cells continued on living. And they, and so you culture these cells and, and it became an immortal cell line known as the HEC-293 cell line. And one of the interesting things about this particular cell line is that it produced some of the proteins that are part of the adenovirus. And so here's the trick, is that you could produce an adenovirus, you could remove some of those genes from the adenovirus, replace them with a gene that was of interest to you, in in this particular case for COVID, the the spike gene, and then you could grow those viruses in the HEC-293 cell line, and the the HEC-293 cell would provide the missing parts of the life cycle for the virus. And so the virus could replicate and continue to grow and you could produce a lot of virus in that cell line. But those particular viruses, when coming into a, a healthy cell that does not have those additional genes, it won't replicate, it goes through one round, it'll produce the protein, uh, in this case, the spike protein, and then that's the end of it. And so the, the, the viral vector vaccines are have a nice safety feature built into them. Uh, it, it gets the, uh, the DNA inside the cell, but then it doesn't replicate any further than that.
1: And, and you, you, you had mentioned the book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, a fascinating read uh, for our listeners who are interested in doing a deeper dive on, on the cell line. So, okay, so, so Craig, that, that takes us through the, the first two types of vaccines, mRNA, viral vector-based vaccines. I want to talk about a third type of vaccine uh, that is in development. Um, this is vaccines that are using recombinant proteins, Uh, These are uh, developers such as Novavax, for example, um, that are using this approach. Could could you talk a little bit about what this approach is and and how it's different from the other two?
2: So so this is technology that really came alive in the late 80s, early 90s and is, you know, genetic engineering uh, at its best. And the it was. You know, they were people were taking genes from viruses and so on and, and putting them in a bacteria like Mishriekia coli and trying to grow them up. And these proteins didn't work. If you made a vaccine out of them, they just didn't work. And so it was learned that the, the way, it's, it's not just producing a protein inside a cell, but the, there's a bunch of modifications that occur after the protein is produced. For example, there are some sugars that are added on to the protein and there's certain in- environment that helps the protein get into the right shape. And so it was learned then that you could grow these, you, or you needed to grow these genes uh, in other types of cells besides just bacteria. And so a lot of the different cell types that were used at the the very early ones were yeast cells and um, I think um, uh, I think it's a, an insect virus c- cell line, or it's a it's a it's a vi- insect cell that um, the gene is uh, incorporated into for, for Novavax. And there's another company called uh, Medicago in Quebec City, and they actually use plant cells to to produce these proteins. And the the second trick. And even when you, you got the protein with the right sugars on it and so on, you still didn't get um, an immune response when you injected these things. And there, actually there are two additional tricks to making a good immune response. The second trick was that you had to get the proteins to form as if they are in the shape of a virus. And these are called uh, VLPs, virus-like particles. And you make some modifications to the protein so that they will assemble into kind of a, a small uh, virus sized particle. Again, the same size around uh, 80 nanometers in diameter. And now your immune system will recognize this as something that's foreign and uh, and you begin to get a good immune response against these small proteins. And the, the last trick that's needed, of course, is that you tend to need strong adjuvants. So these are um, mixtures of, and, and it's, it's really a sort of more of an art than a science, of, of chemicals that will uh, boost your uh, immune response. And um, the one from Novavax is called um, Matrix M and, um, and it uh, has an additional immune stimulating properties that uh, help again to give a, a strong immune response against this recombinant protein.
1: And if I'm not mistaken, I think the Novavax uh, cell line, I think they're actually using a, a, a moth cell line, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken. So, so okay, f- fascinating. So then let's talk a little bit about the the, the last approach being used, uh, which are uh, inactivated viruses. So this, I believe, is largely being used in efforts in China and India. Could you talk a little bit about this approach and, and how it works?
2: Yeah, so this is the the oldest technology there is, of course. This is dates from the days of uh, Louis Pasteur, when you, you grew up uh, the virus and then you inactivated it somehow. And in, in the days of Louis Pasteur, they, he simply let the virus dry out, but nowadays they use a, a chemical means. And, um, the, and so the, what, what is being injected into the person is the whole virus. The whole virus is grown and then it's inactivated with uh, with chemicals, um, and then there may be an adjuvant with it. The the um, Bharat uh, vaccine from India they they've added a, a special adjuvant that helps uh, improve the immune response. Um, it's it's the oldest technology there is. The only drawback from this kind of technology seems to be the yield, and they are um, growing these. Um, these viruses uh, in a -- I think it's a, um, uh, I think it's a, a dog kidney cell line. And the, the, we don't we, we tried to do for our paper, we were going to do sort of a, a cost analysis, how much did it cost to manufacture these different vaccines on the different platforms. And we didn't put it in the paper because we, we couldn't validate some of the numbers that we had, but it, by far, this technology seemed to be the most expensive. Uh, the reason being that the yields, at least from what was published that we had seen, the yields were very low. And so you'd ma- make a huge bat of, uh, batch of, of, of vaccine, but only get, you know, a few thousand doses out of it. So so this technology is old and, and trusted, but it's, it uh, you know, it, it's the most expensive. And the number we came up with was around $100 per dose. And um, in fact, in China, we saw that that was the going rate to purchase that particular vaccine was around hundred dollars a dose. So we're not uh, we're not exactly sure uh, of those numbers, as I say, but um, but that would be the main drawback from that technology. It seems to the numbers they they announced seem to have reasonably good efficacy in the range of fifty to sixty percent, but uh, but um, you know very costly to manufacture.
1: So Craig, let's dive into that that last point a little bit about efficacy. So for your paper, you considered five measures uh, for your comparative analysis. The first of these was vaccine efficacy. Uh, What do we know about the comparative efficacy of these approaches? And and in particular, I'm also curious, how do you compare the efficacy results um, across different vaccines and across different trials, many of which have used different statistical endpoints. Could, could you talk a little bit about the comparative efficacy uh, and the results that we've seen to date?
2: Yeah, that's a, it's a very good point. The, making a direct comparison, of course, is impossible because they weren't all done in the same clinical trial. The On the other hand, like I, as I mentioned earlier, the, the uh, most of the companies have published their clinical trial protocols. And so you're actually able to see what is the endpoint of the, of, the, of the study. And, and most studies have very similar endpoint, and that is uh, there usually is uh, one or two uh, symptoms, um, usually a, a respiratory symptom plus fever. But there's there's other ones also that are, would be included, and that's where the sort of the small differences are. What are those actual symptoms? Uh, and then there's a PCR positive uh, evidence of uh, viral infection, and that's a microbiological endpoint. It's uh, of course there there may be minor differences in way that, the way that PCR is done and the way the swabbing is done and so on. But for the most part, in most studies it's, it's, very, it's very similar that uh, the endpoint is this really, uh, uh, you know, um, microbiological proof that the person is infected with, with um, uh, a coronavirus. So that, that makes them somewhat comparable. And uh, although the information is not available for these, uh, these inactivated uh, virus type vaccines, I think we did find the protocol for one of the studies, but it was a -- I think it was a Spanish translation from Brazil. but, um, but the other ones have, have their protocols online and uh, and you can if you want to get down to the, you know, the, the brass tacks to see exactly how comparable they are, that, that can be done. We, we didn't actually do that. We just, uh, use the numbers that, that were quoted by the different uh, um, public uh, press releases or, or publications.
1: And Craig, a, you know, as as the new variants emerge, right, the efficacy from the initial trials has, has been really, really great. I mean, and, and you mentioned the paper, right? I mean, the mRNA vaccines are in the, you know, 95% range. Um, I think all of the vaccines are and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think are almost a hundred percent efficacious in preventing severe disease. Um, but as, as new variants emerge, do we know anything about the ability of these approaches to confer protection against uh, you know various emerging uh, variants?
2: Yeah, that's that's a very good question. and And there's two ways to approach that. So one of them is to actually look at um, what's going on out there in what is known as an effectiveness study. And in an effectiveness study, it's, it's uh, an epidemiological study where you have to have some kind of surveillance system and you're looking at people who come into the hospital with um, the disease and then you, you um, determine uh, which variant they are uh, infected with. And, and then you find out if they've been vaccinated or not. And so the country—it's required that that country has a very good uh, vaccine registry, so that you can find out exactly uh, when they were immunized and um, uh, and if they received both shots, for example. So Israel, there was a study done in Israel with the uh, Pfizer-BioNTech, and and they looked at uh, now they didn't have the data on which variants were were uh, actually circulating or that people were actually infected with, but they did have, but they did know that almost 80% of the variants of, of what was going on in Israel was the uh, the UK variant, the B one one seven variant. And so they were able to get a number, uh, I think after one dose, it was between 47 and 65% efficacy. And then after two doses, around 90% efficacy. So we know that the the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine has at least 90% efficacy, or sorry, effectiveness uh, against that particular variant. There was some data from the Novavax vaccine in South Africa, I believe it was a clinical trial, and they showed quite high efficacy against the the South um, African variant. Uh, On the other hand, similar uh, data with the AstraZeneca vaccine in South Africa showed very uh, poor efficacy uh, against that variant. And um, so, and, and then the, now there's the, the new Brazil uh, variant. So the, the second way to look at uh, the potential efficacy of vaccine is, is, to, is to do a, a virus neutralization assay. And this is where you take a blood sample and you look at the ability of that blood sample to neutralize the virus. So this is a an assay that's done in a test tube you have some cells growing in the bottom of the test tube you add the virus in along with anti the um, antibodies from the person's sera and uh, can that anti sera stop the virus from infecting those cells inside the test tube it's it's uh, what's what's called a, a correlate of protection and uh, it's it hasn't been i haven't seen any data published yet exactly on uh, what the correlate of protection is for for these vaccines, so any any kind of indication from these blood tests would really be experimental at this point. but it, it does it can give you an idea that if you change the the variant uh, uh, of the virus, uh, is are the antibodies still able to neutralize it? and and most of these tests are showing that you need a higher concentration of antibody to neutralize the variants, but but still the variants can be neutralized. So that's um, that gives us some hope that, uh, that these, these vaccines are gonna provide this protection against these variants. But I think only time will tell the, it's, of course the, 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 the virus itself is, uh, to, in order to survive, if it needs to mutate, it will. It's, it's just natural selection in that uh, any n- mutations that appear that are able to escape the vaccine, well, those are the ones that will continue to survive and go on. So it's, it's gonna be a, always a battle, uh, it's potentially, it's looking like it's gonna be a battle between uh, vaccines and virus as it has been with influenza uh, for, for a long time. And uh, it might, it, who knows, it may end up that every year or every other year, we need a, a booster uh, against the, a new variant that's uh, circulating.
1: So I, th- I think in addition to the, the variants, right, the other key question is durability of response of vaccines right, how long do neutralizing antibodies remain in the bloodstream? Um, is there any clear indication whether people need to be inoculated with a booster in you know, six months or a year or two out from receiving their initial uh, vaccination?
2: Well, of course, <laughs> these vaccines have only been immunized in people for less than a year now. So you're, so <laughs> the longest time you can actually uh, look for neutralizing antibody is, is only a year. Uh, so I, I think this is will be an ongoing research that uh, you know they'll look at what how long does the neutralizing titer last and it's, it's just a matter of time also to, to, to look at and see you know is there an increase in breakthrough cases uh, you know one thing people forget is that even with 95 uh, percent efficacy it still means that you know five percent of people are going to have some kind of uh, Covid uh, case if they if they are exposed uh, this is why of course herd immunity is so important is you don't want people to be exposed but uh, at the present time with the virus still circulating about five percent of people are are going to be susceptible and we'll, and I think that'll be tracked very closely to see how does how does the efficacy last with time are we seeing more and more uh, people uh, who have been immunized coming in with a an infection and, and that will give an idea of the duration of protective efficacy with time it, it's just the only way to, to learn that is just to keep monitoring over time
1: and assuming that we will need you know, boosters on a on a let's say annual or, or fairly regular basis into the future which i i think seems to be the direction we're heading um if if someone were to receive you know a, a, an initial vaccine let's say it was a um, Uh, J&J vaccine initially, right, which is a viral vector based vaccine. Could they receive a booster of a different type of vaccine? So an mRNA booster in in the future? Is there any reason to think that they'd have to stick with the same type of vaccine that they were initially, uh, that was initially used?
2: Yeah, I've seen that there's a a lot of studies out there that are looking, studying that, that very question. And uh, just, just uh, off the top of my head, I would say it it looks pretty good that 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 will be possible. And the reason is that at least three of these four technologies are based on the spike protein. And so if you've primed with one spike protein, you should be able to boost with another spike protein. So I, I think the chances are pretty good that those studies will come out positive that you can mix and match at least the messenger RNA, viral vector and uh, protein types of vaccines that are based on the spike. The inactivated virus ones and not so sure that those ones will be easy to mix and match.
1: So we've obviously been battling this as a a global pandemic, right? So a, a good choice of a vaccine for the United States may not be as good a choice for India or Africa because of cost, logistics or dosing, for example. Um, how dependent are market considerations for choosing the best approach in in various countries and in various geographies?
2: Yeah, I think it's, you know, it is a very important consideration, and this is where these uh, protein vaccines uh, really, I think, will, they've been longer to develop. They're sort of coming in last, but they have the advantage of scale. They can produce much larger quantities per batch. And so they should, you know, the interesting thing that ends up happening is that the 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 production costs are so low that it ends up being the the glass vial that the vaccine is stored in. That's the most expensive part of the of the vaccine. So and and the solution to that of course has been to use multi-dose vials. That helps bring the cost down. So I, I think it is important that uh that the that's an important consideration i think we you know the i think everyone's like me is hoping that this is everyone in the world will have an opportunity to get a shot and from and that's really the only way that uh that will we'll defeat this this virus because if it's there's some population somewhere that is not vaccinated then the virus is still has a foothold in the human population and so and and you know it's not just uh not just uh, COVID, it's all vaccines, you know, we need to reach every single child, every single adult, and and uh, this way we all combine together and and uh, defeat these things.
1: So th- there there have been some concerns about, you know, equity on a global scale and, and the developed world getting, you know, the, the higher tech vaccines and lower and middle income countries getting vaccines that may be Uh, haven't been as well tested or or aren't maybe as effective. Do do you think that's a a valid concern?
2: You know, I think it it is, there is, uh, you know, I mean, I I see it here, Um, I'm in in Canada and we've certainly seen uh, the way the vaccine rollout has been done here that, uh, you know, people with connections and uh, learn and and opportunities, you know, and and, uh, who are working from home, have had much greater opportunity to be vaccinated than people who are working shift work and uh, and can't take time off work because they'll lose their uh, income. Uh, so so there's inequities, uh, you know, even in Canada about who is is getting access to to the vaccines. And and so th- th- there's no doubt also that this is happening in, in other places. And I was we're seeing this now in India. I was very surprised when the first wave in India wasn't, uh, you know, they kept it under control, but now the second wave is, it seems to be quite devastating to them. And on the other hand, you know, India has, uh, is manufacturing these vaccines. The, the AstraZeneca vaccine is being manufactured in India. They have the the Bharat uh, Biotech is manufacturing. So so in in many ways, it's it's very encouraging that they have the technology within their own borders to actually uh, provide the vaccine for themselves, and so so in some ways the the inequities are are less than than you might think, and um, uh, I think that it's something to be you know hopeful for that uh, and and be optimistic about that India does have the capacity it's just they've just got to ramp up and and get all their people vaccinated.
1: And Craig, what one one final question from you? And this is from the uh, you know the sort of you know, I guess patient point of view. Does it matter what vaccine people get? Right, if if someone were to have the luxury of having a choice of which vaccine to take, sh- should they care?
2: Well, that's a tough question. I, you know, my my attitude would be, take the first one that that you're offered. And, uh, you know, I was fully prepared to take the AstraZeneca vaccine if that was the first one that was offered to me. But on the other hand, uh, you know, I, I ended up getting offered the Pfizer BioNTech, and uh, and so I, I took that one. And uh, 95% efficacy compared to 70% efficacy, you know, that's, that's uh, uh, you know, a, a substantial difference in, in efficacy there. So. It, it does make a difference. And uh, so if you have, if all things being equal, if you had a choice between uh, Pfizer and versus AstraZeneca, I mean, I personally would, would pick the Pfizer, but if I, if I didn't have a choice, if the government had purchased a lot of AstraZeneca and that's what was being offered to me, I would certainly take it. It's, it's, it's safe and uh, efficacious and, uh, and it's available.
1: Yeah, and Craig, I'm going to reiterate your your initial point there. You know, strongly recommend that folks take whatever vaccine is is offered and available uh, as as a first choice. Um, okay, with that, Craig, I, I think we covered a lot of ground. I, I, I'm really uh, w- was really happy to learn a lot more about each of the types of vaccines. Uh, that have been developed, uh, that are out there being administered to literally millions of people a- around the world today. So Craig, I- I'd like to thank you so much for for being on the show today and-, and your time.
2: Well, thank you, Neil. It was a real pleasure speaking with you and and uh, I'm gonna look forward to uh, to hearing more of your your uh, um, your blogs and your your online uh, podcasts.
1: Very wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, Neil, what did you think? Yeah, I think that was a really great and wide-ranging discussion. I, you know, I, I was really uh, thrilled to, to learn more about the the different types of vaccines, how they work, how they compare. You heard us talk about the mRNA vaccines. Uh, heard us do a, a, a deep dive on the you know viral vector-based vaccines, right? Those were AstraZeneca and and J and J, for example. Um, the the Novavax vaccine and others that are using the recombinant protein. Uh, approach, and then the sort of the more traditional, you know, vaccines that are using inactivated viruses that are that are really develop, being developed in, in China and India. So I think it's, it's really interesting uh, to see not only the speed of the development of these vaccines, but the different types of technologies
0: that are being employed, I think is also really, really fascinating. What do you think it says about our ability to respond to these types of threats in the future? Well, I think it's very positive. I, I think, um, you know, largely speaking, I think
1: everyone was pretty impressed and surprised at the speed of development of these vaccines, going from you know basically the starting line, uh, you know, phase one to having you know emergency youth authorization for these vaccines and then being administered administered to you know millions of people. Uh, at a global scale, I think is is very impressive. So I think the the, the future bodes well. You know, it's probably uh, only a matter of time before another pandemic hits at at some point, whether that's a coronavirus or an influenza virus or whatever it may be. You know, I I think there's a lot of lessons that have been learned throughout this pandemic, both good and and bad. That can be applied to the future uh, pandemics and and you know the, the fight uh, viruses in in the future. Um, and I, I think there's a, a lot of really important learnings, both in terms of not only the, the the technologies being used to develop vaccines, but really importantly also the logistics and administration of uh, how these you know how the the doses will be
0: deployed at a global scale. One of the things that I've noticed is that after people ask whether someone's been vaccinated. The next thing they want to know is which vaccine did you get? (laughs) Do you think the general population is getting any more sophisticated about the technology itself or is this just the brand thing
1: (laughs) it's a it's a really good question Danny um I think we have a whole lot of armchair virologists out there and you know I think a lot of folks read something and then all of a sudden they're an expert in in you know virology and the the different vaccines and the nuances which is part of why I wanted to do this podcast to begin with is because there's a lot of misinformation out there Um, you know, I, I think as, as you heard Craig say, sure, there are differences in efficacy rates. But again, you know, it's really hard to compare the efficacy rates across different trials. You know, the different trials have different endpoints. And so when you're comparing efficacy results, it's not apples to apples. So I think people sort of get lost in that nuance, which can be very dangerous. So, you know, I think the point is, you know, and you heard Craig say this, which I fully agree with is take whatever vaccine is available at the time. Um, but yeah, you know, I think it's a natural question for people to ask, oh, what vaccine did you get? Just uh, it's more, I think, curiosity than, than anything. And it's, you know, it's nice to see that people are asking that question and have an interest, right, and, and are curious. I think that that's largely a positive thing.
0: There's still <laughs> remarkable distrust among the population towards vaccines, as many as one in four Americans say they won't get vaccinated. Why do you think that is and and does that create a, a public health problem in itself? I Absolutely. I think it creates a public health problem. Uh,
1: I think there's a variety of reasons that there's distrust. Uh, I mean, there's a, a large anti-vaxxer movement. You know, there, there's concerns that, you know, have linked vaccines to autism, um, which, which have been proven time and time again to be fundamentally untrue. There is no you know, causal link between vaccines and, and autism. Uh, I think many people are, are just a little scared for whatever reason. They don't understand the science. They don't understand. And how vaccines work, and and you know that's part of what I was trying to do today is is you know education um, to to alleviate some of those concerns. But yeah, I think it's a real problem, and so I, I think um, as this pandemic has clearly shown, there's a lot of public education that needs to happen in terms of. Um, people taking vaccines, you know, how they work, why they shouldn't be scared to take a vaccine, and and just having a basic understanding of the science behind the vaccines, I think will help alleviate some of these concerns, certainly not all of them. Um, But, you know, having one in four people saying they're not going to take a vaccine, I think is truly problematic.
0: Well, until next time.
1: Excellent. Thanks, Danny.
0: Thanks for listening. The BioVerge podcast is a product of BioVerge Inc., Investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming healthcare. Bioverge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation, from family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non accredited individuals. To learn more, go to Bioverge.com. This podcast is produced for Bioverge by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast is provided courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collect.